Hello, everybody, and welcome to The Broken Banquet, a podcast about missions. We are your hosts, Will Bailey and Dr. Ashley Goad, and we are so glad that you have joined us for another conversation about the church and missions, about what healthy mission relationships can look like, and as we hear from others who have dedicated their lives in one way or another to mission work. We're so glad you're here, and we hope you enjoy this episode. Friends, you are in for a treat today. Our favorite co-host, John Woodward, is back with us because our special guest today is our very own Dr. Ashley Goad. You know, I accidentally kind of hog the microphone sometimes during a lot of our interviews. Well, not today, because today is Ashley's day. The spotlight is on Dr. Ashley Goad, and you are going to love hearing from her. Hello, John Woodward. It's so good to have you on The Broken Banquet again. How are you? I'm doing fabulous. It's good to be back again. Thank you so much. Yeah, we appreciate you uh, pulling co-host duties uh, for a second time. And folks who are, are very attentive listeners might already be assuming why that is the case. Um, but for any of them who don't know, it's because today is Ashley Goad's birthday and we've given her the day off. So she has nothing to do with the Broken Banquet podcast today. Actually, that's not true. We are interviewing... <laughs> There you have it. There she is. <laughs> we are interviewing Dr. Ashley Goad, esteemed uh, Dr. Ashley Goad, missions expert extraordinaire, um, the the heartbeat behind all things broken, banquet. <laughs> broken banquet. <All> right. <laughs> broken behind all things broken. <laughs> So, Ashley, welcome to the Broken Banquet. Thank you so much. It's my and birthday. happy birthday. It's my birthday. Thank you all so much for having me on the podcast. I am so excited. You know, when we started talking about doing this, Ashley, we thought that maybe like five people were going to listen, which was going to be the two of us, your husband, my wife, and my mom. Um, and we are at this point, we may have actually had more than 700 listeners oh, of really? our first four episodes. So I think, um, we're pretty happy about, I'm pretty happy about that. I, um, I couldn't be happier. The, the buzz going on around Shreveport and New Zealand has been incredible. <laughs> we're, we're crushing it in New Zealand for some reason. Oh man. I think that's probably just because Nate Hutchison is such a likable guy. Um, and he's the, the really the, the engine that's driving that. But we'll take it. Um, it's good to we'll hitch our train to as many likable people as we can, right? Ab- absolutely. <clears throat> I was saying One that of- about, about listening to the Smartless podcast that, that most of the time, I, I mean, I love the three guys who host it. It's been fantastic. But uh I listen to the ones with a person that I can't wait to hear the interview with. And uh, so that's how I've been working my way through it. And so I think that that just is a testament to how many great people we know and love. These are people we love, Will. Yes, yes. (laughs) Clearly, it has nothing to do with the two of us. It's because of the quality of our guests 
and guest hosts yeah. that people are are tuning in. Correct. Absolutely. And I think what makes the uh, Broken Banquet podcast so good is the fact that you two are both connected with so many people all around the world. And I'm looking forward to just all the interviews that are coming up in the future because I know the many people you're connected with. So it makes it so much fun. Yeah. I just realized, too, that we're probably going to have video with this. So I want to apologize yes, to everyone about <laughs> not having showered this morning. And <laughs> It's your birthday, Ashley. You don't have to shower on your birthday. Oh, thanks. Today may be the episode that Ashley Goad talks the most on uh, out of all the episodes that we've recorded so far, which is probably good news to a lot of people. So we're just going to let Ashley run with it. And the first thing, Ashley, that I would like for you to do, of course, we've done our sort of introductions. People, I'm sure if they're tuning in, have some idea of who Dr. Ashley Goad is. But we haven't talked a whole lot about your background. So I would love it if you would share with our listeners just a little bit of your story, uh, kind of your introduction into missions and Take us on that journey with you, if you would, please. Well, my name is Ashley Goad, and I grew up mainly in High Point, North Carolina. I grew up going to a Quaker church named Springfield Friends Meeting, and my family had been going there for, I believe, six or seven generations before me. Uh, so I grew up going to a church that my family played a big part in, uh, in planting and getting started. When I was a teenager, like you, Will, I was ready to start traveling. And in between my junior and senior year of high school, I had reached out to a fellow at Guilford College, and Guilford College is a Quaker college, and he led trips to Ramallah, Palestine every year. And I thought that that would just be the best thing ever because one of my cousins, her name was Laura Davis, she had been instrumental uh, in the late 1800s, I believe, of going over to Palestine and teaching at that school, uh, at Ramallah Friends School, uh, for so many years. And so I wanted to go and kind of connect to that history. And that was summer of 1996, I believe. Well, two weeks before the trip, it got canceled because of political problems. And I was like, no, this is my chance to get out of the country. <laughs> this is my chance to leave and explore. Uh, well, it turned out that there was a trip with North Carolina Friends Meeting, which is kind of like the conference or the district. Um, North Carolina Friends Meeting uh, had a partnership with a church and pastor in Matamoros, Mexico. And so I jumped onto that trip and went to Matamoros, Mexico, um, and, and served at the church there with Jorge Reyes and his family. And I loved it so much, and I connected in so well with the pastor and his wife and their three kids that I kept up a relationship with them, and I kept going down to Mexico every summer. And after I graduated from college, I ended up moving to Mexico with the daughter and her husband, and they were serving as missionaries in Mexico City. And I, I stayed with them for quite a while and explored this calling into 
missions and ministry and just absolutely loved everything about it. They taught me what it meant, especially uh, Rocio was the was the name of the of the daughter that I connected so well with. Her husband Mike and Mike's dad Manny was just an incredible man. He and his wife Brenda had been living in Mexico City for for quite some time, over 20 years. And they were a part of that community. And he really did teach me uh, what it meant to be part of the community and serving that community and knowing them so well that they were they were connected in family. So that's how that's how my missions experience started. I, I don't remember exactly what we did uh, on those mission trips. I think that there was Bible school and there were kids and there might have been some painting, but I remember that family really well. And still talk to Mike and Rocio um, a lot. So that's where that's where I got bitten by the bug. And I've joked with you often, Will, that you know we grew up in the '90s where missions was all about you know youth and teams going and doing and painting and building. And I don't I don't work. I don't do manual labor. So, <laughs> but I sure can. I love to sit on the curb, uh, on the sidewalk, and take long walks and. Uh, and be with people and learn who they are. And that's where it all started, Matamoros, Mexico. So there was never any danger of you signing up for a mission trip so that you could go and do as much work as possible for people who couldn't do it for themselves. <laughs> Absolutely not. <laughs> that's, good. that's good. So you mentioned growing up in the Quaker church. I'm curious to know, can you be the spokesman for Quakers globally and say... <laughs> Here's here's how Quakers understand um, you know, missions, or or at least in the church where you grew up. Like how was how was missions and and mission relationships set up or taught to you in your church? Well, let me say this. So the Quaker tenets uh, are spelled out in the acronym Spice S P I C E Spice. And S is for simplicity because Quakers believe in a life of simplicity, um, not extravagant living. Uh, P for the peace testimony. That's what most people know Quakers for is the peace testimony. So if there is that of God in any in everyone, then we should not be at war with each other. We should treat each other well. Uh, I for integrity, for your word to be your word. C for community, to live with each other in community and to build off of that community. And E for equality, Quakers were known from the very beginning to have thoughts about equal race, equal gender. Um, everybody was seen as equals in the sight of God. Um, so with those tenets, uh, growing up with those things, my church was not very active. I don't remember. Let, let me say this. I don't remember my church being very active in the community or in the world. So missions was not something that I knew about in my church. I just knew that I loved to travel. <laughs> and so, and, and maybe we'll cut all this out, but so I don't remember missions being thrust a thrust of our church community. What I do remember was being taught that relationships were important to see everyone around us as those that God created. And because there's the image of God in everyone that we should go forth together in community and relationship. So that's what I remember being taught. I mean, it almost sounds like the, I mean, the acronym that you used, if that's what your mentality as a church community is, then 
you wouldn't need to have missions set up as this kind of other or extra or specific thing that our church does because it just goes without saying. It's who we are. Yeah. Yeah. Which is probably a a much more healthy way uh, to approach understanding missions, you know, on a congregational level anyway. So I know, Ashley, that you didn't go directly from that mission experience in Mexico to full-time ministry. Uh, your journey was kind of wandering. Uh, can you share a little bit of your story of how you ended up where you are today with a total focus on missions? You totally ratted me out, John. <laughs> That's the danger of having people interview you that actually know you. Oh, yes. Well, I... <laughs> You know, I, I think I first felt the calling to ministry pretty early in life. And in fact, I know I did. But I was really captivated by government and political science and, and loving those uh, loving those things. And I, I worked in the North Carolina House of Representatives and just really loved that whole political scene. I didn't get into the law school that family members had gone to. Uh, and so that's when I took the year off to go uh, do mission work in Honduras and in Mexico. And then I came back and studied at the University of Georgia for seven days and realized that God really was calling me into ministry and to missions. And that's when I moved down with Mike and Rocio to Mexico City. And when I came back from there, I worked at a beautiful little Quaker church called Pine Hill Friends Meeting in Ararat, North Carolina. And was on staff there as their children's and youth pastor. Uh, from there, I was in Houston at a Presbyterian church uh, and did everything that the senior pastor didn't want to do. But while I was there, I got connected into a group called Living Waters for the World. And that's where my love of missions really got heated back up again. And so we went as a group to be trained up by this missions organization's to install clean water systems. And from there, I spent a lot of time again back in Mexico and then in Haiti. And that's when my love story with Haiti began in 2009. Um, And as I moved up to a couple of other churches, I took that love with me and then ended up serving as the director of Solar Under the Sun, which is a solar power ministry that partnered with Living Waters for the World to do solar-powered clean water systems, mainly in Haiti. And so I ended up from 2010 to 2013, I spent about as much time in Haiti as I did anywhere else. I had a little room at a monastery that I stayed in. Those brothers were fantastic people who taught me a lot about living in community and serving within a community. And that's where my I just continued uh, that love story with Haiti till this day. So in 2013, I think I had overcome a parasite by that point. Or no, no, no. I'd had cholera the year before because, you know, there was the earthquake in Haiti and I had cholera and had not really healed up well from that. And then I caught a parasite and I just was not feeling well at all. It was March of 2013. So I was leaving Haiti. I was in the airport and just laying down in the departure lounge area and this doctor came over to check on me. He was like, uh, hey, uh, are you doing all right? Because I looked horrible. I was laying on the floor. I looked horrible. I started talking with him and learned that he was part of a mission group from a church in Shreveport, Louisiana. 
And uh, the the leader of that group, her name was Nikki, came over and we chatted and it turned out that they were at a community in the south of Haiti called Derivage, which is outside of Lakai. And I said, oh, I know that community really well. You've been drinking my water all week. And they looked at me like I was crazy because I looked so horrible and how dare they be drinking <laughs> the water that I was, that I had put in. But uh, I had worked with that pastor, Majerard, uh, for a while, for a couple of years. So I knew him well. Anyway, and so Nikki told me that her husband, Mark, uh, had, was going to be transferred to the Woodlands, which is right outside of Houston, to that Methodist church. And of course, she was going with him. And so her job at the church in Shreveport was going to be open. And I said, I perked up a little bit because I knew that I had worked myself out of a position there in Haiti that the auntie and the other guys were, were really in a position to take over everything that I was doing and run it really well. So I gave her my business card and said, well, if you guys are looking for somebody, just give me a holler anytime. Well, the next day, a guy named Jonathan Beck called me and he was the associate pastor at First United Methodist Church in Shreveport, Louisiana. And we talked for probably an hour. And I, I think at that point, I knew that even if nothing worked out with the church, that Jonathan and I were going to be friends for life because <laughs> he's just a fantastic human being. And we are, we're friends to this day. You guys know him well. And so I came in May and met with the church in person. And I remember specifically about that meeting is the senior pastor at that time. His name was Pat Day. The only question he asked me was, so Ashley, what's the difference between transactional and transformational mission? And I said, wow, I want to work for you if you're asking that type <laughs> of question. His vision was to have a mission partnership on every continent. And what was so great about that is, so I came on board August of 2013 John, you and I started our doctorates in August of 2013. So to build this missions ministry, I got to research it out. So together, those two things were born, uh, the missions ministry at First United Methodist and my dissertation. Oh, this is just so many good questions, Ashley. The, mm -hmm. uh, two questions. Uh, first of all, um, you came to Shreveport with it seems like a vision and developed a vision for what mission partnership looks like. So that's going to be one question of what was that vision. But then the other question is your experiences uh, leading up to that. What were the lessons that you learned from all your mission experiences up to that time that prepared you for that bigger vision that you brought to Shreveport? Can I answer the second one first? And then you can remind me of the first one. Okay. The biggest lesson I learned is that missions is not about projects. It's about people. And I loved the project. I mean, I love actually doing something. I'm one of those task-oriented people. So I love having something to do. But I realized that it's more important to see the person and to be with the person. And I think the biggest lesson I learned was sitting in a wooden shack home in the Yucatan of Mexico with a sweet, sweet lady who had absolutely nothing. And she opened her home and said, come and sit with me for a while. And I came and sat and we spent time together. I don't remember her name, but I do remember that that was one of the most meaningful experiences I've ever had. And that taught me that sitting at a table with someone was the biggest blessing and the biggest gift I can give anyone. And so that's when it really hit me that 
we're created to be in community with each other. We're created to live life together. So no matter where we physically are and no matter what language we speak and what culture we're from, we're created to live in community. And how can I bring that to wherever I am? So then how did this develop into the vision or what you brought to Shreveport? Right. So I knew that it was going to be an uphill battle because everybody coming out of the 90s and early 2000s, that's all we thought about. We're going somewhere and doing something for someone. And we thought about missions were to poor people. And so economic poverty was what we were called to alleviate. <laughs> and so we had to do a complete mind change, mindset of what missions is. So thankfully, a local missions director, her name's Michelle Osborne, she came on right after I did, and she had this same vision. So together, we created this educational program, for lack of a better word, to teach our church what it means to live in missional relationships. So what does it mean to live and walk together with the community leaders in our community? What does it mean to walk together with missionaries throughout the world? And it's been a phenomenal thing to watch God building these relationships in our community and all over the world. And because of that, seeing relationships and seeing Christ work through these relationships and building community and building disciples. But it's been a beautiful thing to watch and to see our church family welcome so many missionaries who are serving all over the world and welcome so many people serving in our community into our church and welcome them to our table so that we can all share this gift of relationship with each other. Ashley, I want to draw attention to two things that you said, just because you said them sort of quickly, and I want to make sure people heard it. When you were talking about your time in Haiti, you said that you, you realized you had worked yourself out of a job because the people that you were working with in the community were at a point where they could take over and do what you had been doing. And I think that's really important. I think churches, people need to hear that because that's the mentality that we should always have when we're engaging in communities is that we're empowering the people in the community. If it's a project like that, like a water project or an energy project or an education project, whatever that kind of work is in the community that we're going in with the mentality of the end goal is for the local community to be able to do this for themselves that they don't need us to be there forever and what became so evident and clear was i was just teaching them how best to relate to americans that were coming in so if they were going to be running teams that were coming down like you do will they had to have that cultural intelligence of knowing how to best interact with Americans. And so I felt like my biggest portion of that time there was teaching them how best to communicate and how best to get their points across to bridge the gap between Haitian and American culture. I feel like that was my biggest part of what I did. It wasn't it wasn't about any of the project. It was about teaching them how to best relate so that they could together create what they wanted to create. And I, I would say maybe just as big a gift that you were able to give was the gift of saying, I'm out, yeah. you know, because it's so easy 
for us, and I don't know if this is a cultural thing or if or not, but when we start something, we want to make we want to keep our hands on it and to be able to it, it's not easy to recognize for yourself when you're no longer needed. That's just an ego. That's a human thing, maybe. And so anyway, I just wanted to draw attention to that. The second thing was when you talked about uh, your visit with the woman in the little shack in the Yucatan. Of course, I, I can't not immediately imagine Jesus and the Samaritan woman sitting together at Jacob's well. When I say that, there may be people who are immediately equating Ashley to Jesus and this woman to the Samaritan woman who thankfully Ashley is taking the time to see her. And there may have been moments during that interaction where that was the case and that was the gift. But I'm going to guess that there were also times during that interaction when she was Jesus and you were the Samaritan woman being seen by her. And that is exactly the kind of relationships that we have to be creating are relationships where everybody's needs are being met because we're all being seen by one another. And so I love that you had that interaction with her and how informative that has been in your understanding of what mission means. Well, that was, I was definitely the Samaritan woman in that because I left going, wow, I've been seen. Mm -hmm. So Ashley, after so many years of experience in the mission field and starting at such a young age when you, you, you first went, to Mexico to now where you're leading a, a missions ministry at a, a very large church. How would you say your understanding of missions and mission relationships has evolved over that long time period? I will even say that it's evolved since 2013 when I arrived at First United Methodist in Shreveport. And saying that because I still carried over some of that mentality of how everybody has always done missions. And so I was not only teaching our congregation, but I was teaching myself that it was okay, that this was okay to live in relationship this way. It's okay not to do the project. It's okay to go against what everybody thinks we should be doing. So I, I had to evolve myself and then it still crept in because our senior pastor wanted a mission partnership on every continent. And so I can check that box. Like I can go around and, and, you know, find somebody and meet someone. But the relationships that we sought out, that we were like, oh, we can go here and we can check this box or, oh, we can go here and we could do this. Those are the relationships that failed. But the relationships that God introduced to us the relationships that we prayed about, the relationships that grew organically from relationships we already had, those are the relationships that have sustained. So the lesson there is when God leads, everything is great. When I try to do things on my own power and because I want to travel to this place or I want to do this thing, they fail. It would seem that with your particular uh, way of doing missions, as partnerships and developing really close relationships and encouraging relationships with uh, with missionaries, there must be a lot of difficulty 
because there are people probably coming to you all the time seeking help for their mission projects. Um, how do you deal with the people that might come along uh, desiring your help and wanting to be a part of what you're doing? How do you handle those kind of uh, relationships? Well, we have. We, we have a lot of people that will just cold call the church. And so I, I had so much of that happen, especially 2014, 15, 16, that we created a mission partnership application. <laughs> and so it was about the most lengthy thing that you've ever seen. It was a solid 10, 12 pages. And so I would be like, great, we have an application for this. Because if we didn't know, if we didn't have an existing relationship of any type or any connection of any type, that I, I just needed to get to know them better. And that was easy for me because I will say yes to anything. Like I don't have the ability to say no. Um, and I want to be involved with and hear about everything. So uh, to protect me almost, uh, the mission committee created this mission application. And so I will send that out to whoever. And if they actually take the time to fill out the application, <laughs> then, then, uh, then we'll have a good conversation. So that's, that's one way I got around some things. But for whatever reason, it's really tapered off. Like I haven't sent out one of those applications in ages. I don't even remember the last time I have. Um, but what I have enjoyed is that there are a few other churches here in Shreveport that are very heavily connected in missions, especially global missions. And whenever they have one of their missionary partners uh, visiting, they will bring them by. And I just love sitting and talking with them. Uh, it's one of my favorite things that I get to do as a missions pastor is to sit and to listen, to hear how God's working in their lives, to hear their call story, to hear their sending story, and, and to hear about the community that they're living in. And you've had opportunity over the last few years to be invited into churches to share with them oh, yeah. about how to develop partnerships. And I was kind of curious to know what you tell those churches and how you inform them on what good partnership looks right. like. Right. So I begin every lesson with there shouldn't be no short-term mission trip outside of a long-term partnership. That's how I begin every mission lesson I give to mission committees. And I believe that because if there is no long-term partnership, if there's no partnership or existing relationship, then we're just going as what Hunter Farrell would call the selfie mission. We'd just be going to go travel and to go do and to parachute into a community without knowing who they are, without understanding who they are, without understanding if there's even a need for a team to be there. Do you think there's room for an exception to that rule when it comes to disaster response? Yes, well, disaster response. And I say that because um, normally there are disaster coordinators and disaster relief coordinators that are there doing the relationship piece. Michelle, for instance, at our church, she will go into the disaster area and she will meet with the family. She will meet with the community and usually like, with the United Methodist Disaster Relief, that there are the church pastors and the church communities that are leading the relief of that community. Um, so they're supplementing, the teams that are coming are supplementing the efforts of the community leaders. So Ashley, you do take short-term mission trips. Yes, I do. So what does that look like? And 
I'm sure you've had to do a lot of re-education for people going on those trips. Well, the number one question I am asked is, what are we going to do? And my answer to that every time is, well, what do you do when you go visit your family? And when you visit your family, you eat together, you play together, you take walks together, you catch up, you have long conversations, and you reunite. It literally is a family reunion wherever we go. The conversation that I have before we go is usually, what do you want this trip to look like? That question is asked to the missionary or the mission partner. And oftentimes, sometimes Olga will say, yes, come to Russia and we're kicking off our small group leader training. So if you have people in your church that are small group leaders that want to come, it would be so helpful to have them here so that we can hear their stories of how they have been small group leaders and what they have learned. Sometimes I'll give that call to Stefania and say, hey, what is it that you need before we come? And she will say, I need a vacation. Can we go hole up in a castle for five days and do nothing but drink coffee and eat chocolate? Yes, we can do that. Um, when I call Tamara or Jeremy in Uganda, it will often be, hey, just come and be with us and just be part of our family for a week. And that looks like having meals, taking care of the kids while they go out on a date, going with them into the Masese slum area and being part of community and the church with them. And so each place, whatever we do on that short-term mission trip, which I think we call family reunion trips um, or pilgrimage trips, whatever you would like to call it, is going to visit our family. And whenever you call your family, like sometimes they'll have honeydew lists and you'll have things that you can do. But most importantly, it's about being together and sharing life together. I have been on the receiving side of that with our organization, uh, South Pacific, uh, because on one of the trips that you brought a team over, we put together a retreat for our missionaries. And we spent, what, four or five days at a beautiful place and brought all our staff together. And we didn't do anything except be together and we brought people from Australia over to New Zealand and just hung out with family and friends. We ate, we talked, and it was beautiful. And as I talked to our workers, they talked about having such a time of refreshment, just a joy to not do anything, to be together, and to know that people were investing in their lives and they're just encouraged them. And so a very different look of what a short-term mission trip was all about. And I love that because they spoke their needs. That's what their need was. Their need was to get together the leaders of their church, to get together with other church planters, to share ideas which naturally come about through a conversation around a dinner table. And they got to live life together and just pause and to be together. And it's exactly what we did in Italy. That's where the whole Italy trip that we had with all of our First United Methodist partners came out of is because, well, if we can do this in South Pacific, just for this little group of people, why don't we do it for everyone so that they can all sit around a table together, share ideas, pray with each other, and just be together. It's a beautiful, beautiful idea because I don't think we ever saw Jesus doing a project. He never built anything. Even when uh, Peter tried to put up a tent for him, he was like, you're missing the point. 
this is our time to be together. He sat, he had conversation, had lots of meals. The guy loved to eat, so and he loved to party. So if we're trying to live life in the model of Jesus, then I believe this is it. And what a blessing for the missionaries, because I'm sure many missionaries on the mission field have this need or feel a very strong pressure to have to show what they are doing. And so mission trips are them having to perform for their mission partners rather than they're just being able to feel loved and appreciated and have a time of rest and relaxation. Ashley, I think a lot of people have the impression that because of the amount of traveling that you do, because of your role at the church, is that, you know, Ashley is this super savvy global traveler. And I'm really curious to know if there's ever been a moment or maybe more than one moment when things have sort of gone sideways and you've thought, I'm not sure how I'm going to get out of this current situation. You got any, any good stories like that that you could share with us to debunk the myth that everything is always perfect when traveling with Ashley Goad? <laughs> I think I'm not the healthiest person. I try really hard to be healthy, but it seems like if there's a bug out there, I'm going to get it. In Haiti, the cholera episode was pretty horrific. So I was staying at the monastery in the mountains of Haiti. There was a massive thunderstorm that evening and the rain coming down on the tin roof was just so loud. Well, that's the night that cholera hit. And I was in the bathroom on the floor, could not move for probably 10 hours while everybody was just asleep. And when they got up for morning prayer at 5 a.m., they found me on the, the floor of the bathroom and it was horrendous. And thankfully they were able to put me into a car and get me to a doctor and then bring me back to the monastery. And they put a, a brother outside of my room uh, like for every two hours would, <laughs> would um, trade him out uh, a rotation. But uh, that was a pretty horrific experience. Like I thought, well, I'm just going to die on the floor of a bathroom in Haiti. This will be good. This will be real good. That was pretty, pretty horrible. Um, and then I guess the other one was we were in Uganda and flying back through Istanbul. And there was a bombing in Istanbul uh, at the airport. And that was one of those freaky experiences of what are we going to do? How are we going to get home? What if there's another bomb while we're there? And kind of freaked out. Holy cow. I'm going to either die in Haiti, die in Uganda, or die in Istanbul. So I'm sorry that you've gone through those things, but thank you for just reminding everybody that you are a human. Um, it looks like maybe you've remembered another one. So there was a, a shootout in Haiti. I was in a uh, in my little hotel room down in Lakai area, and I heard the shots going on because the little hotel area was right by the police station. And uh, there was a shootout going on between the police and a gang outside. And for whatever reason, I pulled the mattress off my bed and put it in front of the door thinking that that would help because, you know, <laughs> if bullets come through a mattress. I was like, this is not a tornado. This is a shootout. But uh, that was that was one of those moments. Your book is going to be really good. actually. <laughs> 
So one of the things that, that I've always appreciated about you, Ashley, is our connection with being connectors to just be able to connect people with other people. And so could you talk a little bit about what that looks like for you, but also as a great example of that, if you could share the story of your helping uh, the tour guide from Israel get back home. I do love the connection piece. Within about a minute of talking to somebody, for whatever reason, it pops into my head, oh, you know who this person should talk to? <laughs> and it, that's a it's a blessing and a curse because the curse is I end up not being as present with that person in front of me as I should be. Um, but I, I can't help but think, oh, this person needs to meet this other person I love. Um, it, and it's been so beautiful to watch these relationships come together and how the people that I love loving each other as much as I love them and then how they end up working together. It, it's been a beautiful thing to watch over the years, this growing community. Like Our world is so big, but it's so small. Will introduced me to Nader uh, back in 2020 when we went to Israel uh, and and his wife is, where's, where's Nader's wife originally from? Odessa. Odessa, um, Ukraine. And so I was with Stefania in Spain the weekend that the Ukrainian war broke out. Uh, so she went back to Romania. And I believe, Will, you were the one that said Nader had been in touch with you. Is that right? He had been in Ukraine um, because he was back and forth between Ukraine and and Israel. And so I had been asking him as things were kind of escalating according to the media here, you know, what's your take on it? And, and honestly, his response was, you know, it's a non-event. It's just a lot of chest thumping and this is just what they do from time to time. And then three weeks later, tanks are rolling across the border. So I got in touch with him again and said, Hey, you know, now what? That was when he, he shared with me that they were trying to figure out a way to get his wife and daughter mm-hmm. out of Ukraine to be with him in Israel. And so then text messages started going back and forth between myself and Ashley. And Ashley, if you maybe jump in with what, what Stefania Dragos were already by that point, kind of the wheels were turning there right. with what they were doing. Right, so they were they were already noticing that that uh, citizens from Ukraine were flooding over the border in Romania, and how best it would be to serve those refugees and either getting them transiting them to another place where they had family or housing them in Romania. And so they were already an integral part of what was going on there. Um, and we were able to put Katya in touch with Dragos and Stefania, so she ended up driving to Bucharest, Romania with her daughter and cat and Dragos and, and Stefania were, were the catalyst. They, they housed her. They uh, were able to help her with her papers so that she could get to Jerusalem with Nader. And they were able to even get the cat its papers so that the cat could travel. And they kept her car while they sent her on her way. And then I was back in Romania in September when Katya came back through Romania to get her car and to go check on things in Ukraine. So I was able to meet her and see her. And when things like this happen in the world, when there's a disaster, when there's a war, when there's any type of crisis, when there's celebrations, whatever the case is, 
we have these people that God has put in our lives that we can connect together so that they then have a way forward. And, and what a beautiful testament to partnership, to companionship, to relationship, to connection. Yeah, it's hard to describe that whole episode. And it was over several days of, of things kind of happening. Of course, it was extremely worrisome, just the situation in general. Um, but at the same time, it was kind of exhilarating to be this far away but to know that we're being used to help a specific person. Also frustrating knowing how many tens of thousands of other people needed that same kind of help, but our resources were really limited to, to the specific people that we knew. You know, with, with Stefania and Dragos, the circle was broader because they were so close and, and were actually physically dealing with people who were coming through. And then, of course, there's people in aid agencies that, you know, it's all they've been doing for a year now is serving people in that situation. But just to be able to play some part in providing some degree of comfort and safety for a family that was in crisis on the other side of the world, it's just... It was the why. It's the why we do what we do. Like, it's why we are created to be who we are. And isn't that a beautiful representation of what the banquet table should look like, mm. where we're bringing together people in, from how many different places? We've got a missionary in, in Costa Rica. We've got a uh, you know, mission pastor in, in America. We've got uh, workers over in Romania. We've got uh, a Palestinian uh, and his wife in the Ukraine and all that working together to bring about good results. And that's what the banquet table should really be all about. And that's why we have John Woodward on the podcast. Boom. So Ashley, uh, we've talked about, you know, some pretty serious kind of theological and churchy mission stuff. Uh, we've talked about some pretty scary moments in your, your life and ministry. I'm really dying to know if, if you've ever been bitten by a wild animal, that's the burning question. <laughs> so I don't know what it is about me, but you know, animals love me. And this one time I was in Ecuador and I was having my picture taken with this uh, llama, as you do. And, you know, llamas are pretty cute. Uh, they're on all kinds of sweaters these days, right? And so I was having my picture taken with this llama that was very cute. And then all of a sudden, he really liked me. He just really liked me, y'all. And he just leaned his head on down and bit me on the breast. Oh, dear. <laughs> and there's actually a picture of that happening. And my expression, we'll have to put that on the, uh, the website or the... This is totally the animal kingdom getting revenge on you for eating guinea pigs in Ecuador. See, that's, that's what true. happened. You that's eat, exactly right. You eat furry little cuddly pets in Ecuador and the llama mafia comes after you to exact revenge. Would you say that was one of the most bizarre experiences you've ever had besides being bathed in Nutella? Is there oh, anything right. that tops your Nutella body rub in Turkey? I don't know. I don't know. There's so many. So 
it seems to be that massages are what get me into trouble. Like I never actually have massages here in the United States of America. But whenever I go to places, like that seems to be the offer, the thing. So one time we were in Russia and the the ladies of the church, they were like, y'all need to have massages. And we were like, yeah, sure, whatever. And they bring this guy in who sets up his table, like in the Sunday school classroom, which is just crazy weird anyway. And like he was, it was like an electric stem like type thing. I don't know. But at the end, like he put all this oil on and then wrapped me in saran wrap and like put a towel over me and maybe drink tea. I don't know. It was so weird. And then John, do you remember that time we were in Thailand and bless your heart. We, we like totally left you at the airport. And anyway, uh, that's a whole other story for another day. But Kiao was the name of the lady of the house, uh, like the maid of the house. And, and so Julie and I were there the day before you got there. Cause you know, you got kicked off the plane and everything. And <laughs> which is a great story. <laughs> But Kiao was like, what, what would you like to do today? Would you like to go ride an elephant? And we were like, sure, we love to go ride elephants. And she was like, what would you like to do this afternoon? Would you like massages? And we were like, we love to have massages. So Julie and I were there at the uh, at the house and we realized that the massages are from Kiao and her sister. And so like they come into our bedrooms and like Kiao like got into bed with me and like gave me this massage. And that was a little weird. That was... <laughs> That was a good time. Oh, but that next day, John, was great because she was like, what do you all want to do today? Do you want to take a boat? And we were like, yeah, we'd love to take a boat. And we took that boat out to that island. Oh, that was awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Didn't you get a massage in Costa Rica one time? Oh, yeah. She came to the room and like it was baby oil. It was really weird. I I don't know. I think that I just shouldn't get massages anymore. Kind of sounds that way. <laughs> what can go wrong with massages in foreign countries? Oh, jeez. Do you have any stories you can share that I'm not going to have to edit out? <laughs> oh, man. Explicit at the end of your podcast. Yeah, we, do have, we do have kind of a target audience for this podcast, actually. <laughs> oh, my gosh. We, we, you know, you got to read the room. Okay. You are a very well-read person, and I know there's a lot of Christian writers that you have uh, gleaned a lot of information and insight and and has helped you in your um, walk and, and ministry. So can you share a few of your favorite authors or books that have really influenced your uh, direction in ministry? This will be shocking to those who are listening from Shreveport and who hear me preach on Sundays, but I absolutely love reading Henry Nowen. He is what I call my spiritual director, and I wish that I could have met him. But when I read Life of the Beloved, that completely, I don't want to say changed my life, but it's been a big part of me seeing this table because he actually uses communion liturgy to explain how we are all the beloved. So being um, taken, blessed, broken, and given. And so that that had a very meaningful impact, a meaningful impact on my way of seeing people, way of seeing relationships, companionships, and my way of doing mission because we are all beloved children of God. And I think it just built off the spices, you know, of seeing that of God in everyone, the Quaker way, 
of just building on that even more. So I read that book often. I've loved the sermon series I did on that book, and I carry it with me just about everywhere I go. So yes, so Henry Nouwen, of course, uh, you know, this painting behind me is The Return of the Prodigal Son by Rembrandt, and it is it hangs in the Hermitage in Russia. And so, so it's I've not had, that it's not the original it, it is not in your it, house. No, no. It's 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 like a replica, but it's almost as big. But yeah, it's a it's this massive painting. And Henry Nowen also wrote about sitting in front of that painting. So when I was able to go to Russia for the first time and sit in front of that painting like Henry Nowen did, and now I've done it six more times. Uh, <laughs> just absolutely incredible to uh, read his book, The Return of the Prodigal Son, which is based on sitting in front of that painting and the grace that we live into. Another author I really love is N.T. Wright. I know this will be shocking to both of you since we've spent so much time going through a book together um, based on N.T. Wright. And then I got to go meet him because Will didn't want to meet him, but I got to go meet him and have my picture taken with him. And it was the most wonderful experience ever. But anyway, N.T. Wright, writes a lot about uh, how it's not just our goal to get people to heaven, for us to get to heaven. Our goal is to bring the kingdom of heaven here on earth. And that spoke to me because seeing how the banquet table is broken, how we, in making the banquet table whole again, are bringing that bit of heaven here on earth. So the veil between heaven and earth becomes so much smaller when we're all sitting around a table together and seeing each other as equals and loving each other as Christ would love us. Hmm. So N.T. Wright, Henry Nowen, those are my two go-to guys for absolutely everything I do. Ashley, I'm so glad that um, people are going to get to learn so much more about you and your journey and what has gotten you to where you are now and a little bit more about what makes you tick. It'll help people understand a little bit better these conversations that we've been having with people and and sort of what our perspectives are and and what we are trying to bring to this broken banquet table. So thank you, thank you. You've been listening to The Broken Banquet, a podcast by Will Bailey and Ashley Goad. Music provided by Irene and the Sleepers. Join us next week for another episode. He's prepared the table all things are ready. Come to the feast. I do have one more question for you. And I just, uh, please, this is probably the most important question I've asked today. So I just want to make sure you, you speak very clearly so that everyone can hear you. Would you would you let everyone know the name of the most winningest coach in Division One men's college basketball history is? Speak loud and clear, please. Well, let's see. It was Dean Smith. No, not was is who is oh. the winningest coach in college basketball Division One. <laughs> I don't think I know. I, I know you know. You're a smart girl, Ashley Goad. What's his name? Um, uh, Close. Uh, Almost. Uh, Come on. Come on.
Yeah. You can say Yekaterinburg, but you can't say Shashevsky. <laughs> Come on, Ashley. <laughs> Coach K. Thanks, Ashley. Thanks this for being is, on the Broken Banquet. This is the worst podcast ever. <laughs>So Ashley, I think a lot of people have their impression of you because your your role at the church netetetates. <laughs> well said, Will. It was I, so good. That was so good. I think that my comment on how articulate you are. Nailed it. <laughs> yeah. My name, Morkavi. Yeah.